0: Clinical trials for rare disease therapies face many challenges due to the small patient population on which they draw, the fact that often there may be many unanswered questions about a specific disease, and the potential variation in the way a rare disease manifests itself in patients. We spoke to John Bolin, Vice President of Product Development for the Atlantic Research Group, about the Contract Research Organization's recent white paper on critical considerations for Rare and Orphan Disease Trial Planning, the special challenges of conducting rare disease clinical trials, and how to best address these unique challenges. John, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm
0: excited to be here. We're going to talk about clinical trials for rare diseases today, the special challenges they pose, and, and why the tactics that work for large market therapeutic development can be a recipe for failure in rare disease therapies. There are two critical, if obvious, points about rare disease trials that underlie these issues. I I thought we could start there. The first and most obvious is that these are small patient populations. What does that mean when it comes to conducting a, a clinical trial?
1: Sure. Well, it means a lot, I think. Um... You know, first and foremost, they're rare patients. They're you know, rare for a reason. Um, they're tough to find. Um, some some rare indications are are sort of rare and known, um, but then there's there's sort of a subset now that it, and it continues to grow of the the rare and unknown. Um, and that's really kind of where my background um, uh, fell when I got into rare disease research was with uh, a company called uh, Chelsea Therapeutics working on a product called droxydopa for neurogenic orthostatic hypotension. Um, a rare disease that uh, wasn't very well known within the um, the treatment community at all we had a few key opinion leaders um, but your uh, your 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 general um, uh you know uh, family practitioner uh really didn't know a lot about this disease and uh these patients kind of got lost in the shuffle in the healthcare system they wind up in um, in different uh facilities uh, different types of specialists and not really where they needed to be with uh with a neurologist so um, you know, they, they're, they're tough to find. And when you do find them, you really got to treat them like gold and make sure that you're doing everything you can to, uh, to shepherd them through the clinical trial process with as little burden as possible.
0: The other point worth noting is that there's often limited knowledge about a disease. What, what is the consequence of that in terms of establishing meaningful trial endpoints and, and convincing regulators that they should accept them?
1: that's a great point and that's very much in line with um with with our our chelsea story here is um with without having a lot of knowledge and a lot of research in in uh, noh um there was one other approved drug in the 90s um uh, for the condition that was approved on a, a accelerated approval conditions um we were very much closer to the r in the r and d side of things than on the development side so we were learning a lot as we were going along and not only were we learning at Chelsea, but we then had to transfer that knowledge to the regulators, um, get them up to speed on what the, uh, um, you know, what the, the new information that we had discovered through our clinical trials were, uh, and then also get that information out to um, our investigators and the participating sites in the study. Uh, so we could really not just raise awareness about the condition, but also, you know, kind of help to uh, to uh, define the treatment paradigm and, and, and how best to use um, our product uh, to, to treat that condition. So there's really, there's a, a a huge educational component to rare disease research. And I really think that's, um, uh, that's an area that, um, that we're still learning how to, uh, how to deal with, um, and, and who we need to involve in that process. So, uh, certainly the patient advocacy groups become an incredible asset in that and, um, and and a super resource for, um, Raising the awareness and, and making sure patients are informed about what their treatment options are and what's on the horizon that they can uh, they can look forward to.
0: Good planning is a, a key to clinical trial success. What are the types of things that a company should think about before even entering the clinic to ensure their best success once once they get there?
1: Yeah, uh, uh, there's so many. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it, 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 in an ideal world, I would say it, it really Boils down to engaging um, not just the the developers, the, the manufacturing organization, the key opinion leaders, but if you can get patients involved in the initial trial design, get the advocacy groups involved in the initial trial design, talk to as many people um, at the site level, not just maybe not just at the key opinion leaders uh, level about um, the disease state the natural history of disease what what do, what do you see with these patients just through normal course of of treatment how does that translate into the protocol and really try to keep that protocol focused in on the the specific scientific question you're trying to answer um you know these oftentimes uh you know these patients suffering from rare diseases have have significant limitations on um burden them with um uh extra procedures um that don't address the specific question uh, does a drug work or not um, really can make a difference between a good study and and um, and confusing data
0: I, I think we're long past the days of thinking of patients as, as passive objects in, in clinical trials when you think of, of reaching out to patients and working with them on on clinical trial designs how should companies go about that what's the most effective way to to interact with patients and in patient advocacy groups.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the patient advocacy groups really are the gateway to um, collaborating with the patients in a um, a manner that, that doesn't sort of cross over the lines between, um, you know, the, the, the market driven aspects of, of the pharma industry and, and the, the altruistic aspects of, of, of what we're trying to do here as well. So having that patient advocacy group in there, to facilitate the conversation, act as a buffer to keep the patient's best interest in mind, um, and to make sure that you know we're, we're being respectful, uh, but we're also being uh, uh, proactive and 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 um, as scientific as possible about the process. I think that's um, that's really the direction that uh, that that we would recommend folks um, folks proceed.
0: And what role do they play in actually helping you find patients when you're dealing with a, a small population?
1: Yeah, well, they they'll help facilitate uh, informational uh, meetings and and uh, and and spreading the word out. You know, they've got they've got their communication channels, whether it's social media or or however else they're they're going about doing that. But they will, um, you know, they're they're interested in, in in promoting the awareness and 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 new treatment options for um, for the patients that are within their group. So my experience has been very positive with the uh, the the patient advocacy groups and um i would i would i would dare go out on Linda to say um for at least for for a number of the rare disease studies that we've worked in uh, we wouldn't have been able to um to successfully complete the trials that we have without the assistance from these groups
0: i i think one thing that that patients with the rare disease may have a hard time understanding is the selection criteria that companies use these are patients that are often quite desperate for a a therapy, and for a variety of reasons, uh, a s- drug trial sponsor may be reticent to include certain patients. Th- there's a need to find the right patients in the sense that they've got to have enough of a disease progression that a drug can show efficacy. But at the same time, I think companies are concerned about patients that are too ill that the drug may not be able to have enough of an effect given the progression of the disease. How, how critical an issue is? Patient selection in that regard, and how much choice will a company have given the small population which with they may be working?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that, that's that's. <laughs> I think when we crack that uh, that answer, we're we're all going to be um, uh, uh, very well off. Um, that's a, that's a that's a tough nut to crack. You certainly don't want to lose patients who maybe have a more mild or moderate disease state than 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 some other folks who would show greater uh, improvement on a product. Um, and, and to your point, you know, the, the, the few numbers of patients that are out there with a particular rare disease, it makes it that much more difficult. Um, again, I don't know that I have the best answer for that. I think it's gonna, it's gonna boil down to indication by indication and really what the endpoints are for the indication. I can tell you from our experience, uh, with the Droxy study, um, you know, we, uh, we almost took all comers. You know, we, we wanted to make sure that there was a, an adequate disease activity that we would be able to measure a response. Um, but we also had sort of a um uh I'll call it a, a you know a, a a catchment study in place for those that were um uh suffering from the illness maybe didn't meet the exact criteria that we needed to get them into the pivotal study um but we had sort of an open label compassionate use uh, protocol going on to help generate some safety data so we were able to kind of satisfy both of those um those items and um and and help out as many of the patients that we were able to find as possible once
0: patients are enrolled in a study, keeping them enrolled is, is another issue. There are a variety of things that come up and come into play in this regard. One thing you discuss is, is protocol complexity and, and the demands this makes on patients. How should companies think about trials when it comes to protocol complexity and, and the effects that may have on patient retention?
1: Yeah. Well, again, I, I, would, I would recommend you, talk, you know, talk to the advocacy groups, talk to the patients themselves. And understand what their, their, um, their daily life is like. And then you have to answer some hard questions on the sponsor side. Is this a critical endpoint to getting this drug on the market so these patients can benefit from it? Um, you know, the, uh, once you get them in the studies, obviously you gotta, you gotta go the extra mile to keep them in there. And that could be everything from, from providing some travel assistance to them, um, or, uh, home care visits, uh, just to name a few. So, um, you know, it really is is going to be indication specific. It's going to be it's going to depend on on the um, drug over the finish line. Do you
0: see digital health devices using remote monitoring playing a a growing role in in clinical trials and, and particularly in in patient retention?
1: Uh, yeah, I guess I do. Um, we've utilized patient diaries, and the patient diary uh, you know the technology behind patient diaries is is growing at leaps and bounds. Um, you know, our focus, uh, with with my experience, um, with the interactions with the agency, really was um, to demonstrate a a symptomatic and a clinical benefit for for the patients with NOH. Uh, just uh, showing that we improved their blood pressure wasn't quite good enough. We had to had to be able to um, quantify that. Um, so we had to embark on uh, on a, a rather large project of developing and validating a um, a, a, a symptomatic questionnaire. Um, which is, it was a a bit of a curveball for us as we got into the development of, of the product, um, you know, simultaneously developing a drug and developing the instrument that you're going to use to measure the clinical benefit and sort of hang your hat on for efficacy with, um, with your, your, your NDA filing. Uh, it's, that's a, that's a big challenge. Um. But certainly, you know, I think the agency was was very clear with us when they said they they wanted us to show that patients were were feeling better, and they you know, we didn't just have a physiological effect, but we actually had a symptomatic benefit on them as well. Um, and uh, we utilized uh, a rather sophisticated electronic patient diary system to do that. Um, that you know, at the time, uh, this was a number of years ago. It had all the bells and whistles available at the time. It, uh, you know, automatically reminded patients that it's uh, time to fill out your diary. It had triggers for site staff to contact patients if they had missed data and things of that nature. So um, I think it's critical, and and it, you know there's some really cool tech out there to uh, to help uh, augment the, uh, the the burdens of that we all know patient diaries possess clinical trials.
0: We've talked a lot about patients, but what about site selection and and clinical researchers? How specialized should they be for rare diseases and what voice should they have in the trial design? How much of an issue will their physical proximity to patients be with the disease? Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. yeah. Uh, you know, that's, that's a, a critical element of this. Um, you know, we had experience with um, uh, very large uh, academic centers that were, you know, sort of the thought leaders within the, um, the NOH field. Um, and we also had sites that were, that were, quite honestly, uh, rather naive to research. So um, we had to take a, uh, an interesting approach to things. We sort of turned the, um, and this was, a, this was a hard lesson learned. I, I should preface this all by saying that we, we made a lot of mistakes before we figured it out. Um, but we had to kind of turn the paradigm on its head uh, in, in, in some instances where we would actually find a patient and then go find the site. Um, It could either be a a site that was already participating in the study that was relatively nearby to where that patient was. But in some cases, we went and recruited um, investigative sites uh, based on where a patient's locality was. And, uh, you know, it took some extra effort on our part to um, train the investigative site and some additional monitoring at the site to make sure that they were doing everything that they needed to do. But we had great success with that. So um, I, for me, the take home message with that is there's there's no sort of single formula answer to how to overcome these challenges. But you really got to be creative and think a little bit differently about how you're going to go about addressing um, the, the very unique challenges that come with rare disease and small patient populations.
0: In terms of using multiple trial sites, what do companies need to think about in terms of how they ensure that there's a consistency in the way data is collected and measured? I think patients would be surprised to learn that from site to site, there could be wide variance in in a clinical trial result because of inconsistencies in that process.
1: Absolutely. It all boils down to training of the site. And having a, having a, a good team working very closely with the site in constant communication. And that, you know, to, to, to just kind of harken back to, um, you know, the, the initial topic, you know, the tactics that you employ in these small market studies versus the large market studies. You know, if you're doing, um, you know, a, a cholesterol study or something like that. It's a pretty hard endpoint. You have a lot of measuring disease activity and, um, uh, you really got to pay attention to how you're going to go about um, training the sites, making sure they're collecting the data, they're doing their evaluations properly. We've em- we've employed uh, tactics such as um, you know uh, YouTube videos and things of that nature to record training and make sure that there's a constant pressure at the site, um, uh, so they can go back and they can they can watch that video. Um, you know, we'll, we'll provide some extra attention for them and. and uh, you know, schedule a teleconference with the key site staff uh, the day before a patient visit, make sure that they're very clear on what the procedures are. We had a very specific uh, schedule uh, sequencing of our procedures in the NOH development program, uh, just given the nature of, of the highly variable nature of blood pressure um, in general. You know, we've all heard about white coat syndrome and things like that. So we wanted to make sure that when we were taking these uh, measurements and doing these assessments in the clinic, we were as as consistent as possible um and it, again it boiled down to training it boiled down to uh, very clear uh documentation and, and um uh, procedures manuals on the sites and um and and near constant contact from not just our cros but also from us at on the sponsor side of things uh we um we learned very early on that the, the additional level of sponsor attention goes a long way nobody knows the drug quite like the manufacturer the drug's going to know it and um you know uh being able to um have that sponsor uh, reference point there and and very much an active member of the um, the clinical study, Um, it went a long way for us. And uh, I think it led to higher quality data at the end of the day and and greater collaboration and and, um, certainly helped with the the learning aspects that we touched on earlier.
0: Can can you explain what a protocol amendment is and and how problematic they can be and how they're best avoided?
1: (laughs) Sure, I, you know, anytime you're going to change the protocol, um, based on it could be based on any number of of, of items. Uh, you know, we call that an amendment, and that that triggers off a whole sequence of other events from um, IRB submissions and and approvals to uh, to additional training, and, and certainly on the business side of things. You know, what does that mean from from your your uh, development partner's perspective, and and, and the impacts on budgets that might have. Um, if I'm going to be bluntly honest with you, I'm going to tell you that it's really hard, in my opinion, to conduct a rare disease study that doesn't have protocol amendments, especially when you're dealing in that sort of rare and unknown area, because you're you're really very much learning as you go along, and you you've got to have a mindset of of accepting that learning and being able to change and adapt and 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 do those things quickly, because you've got patients out there that are. Currently enrolled, you don't want to lose them. You don't want to uh, don't want to do wrong by them. You don't want to not. You don't want to say no amendments at all, but you want to be measured about it, and you want to do your homework up front. And that's why it goes it, it goes to the point of the protocol design at the onset is critical to talk to all the different players involved, so you can try to get in front of any of those issues that would pop up through the normal course of the study, um, build those into the protocol, perhaps even build the protocol to a point where it's got a bit more flexibility in it. Um, with the intent of, of of allowing a little bit of of freedom uh, on the investigator side for certain things, of course, certainly you don't want to let, let them go too crazy on it. Um, but uh, you know, you try to anticipate them as best you can. But I I, I will say, in my experience, um, protocol amendments in rare disease research are uh, probably more common than not.
0: On clinical trials, there are questions that regulators will want answered before granting a marketing approval, but but there are also questions that patients and payers or others might like to see answered. H- how much of a balancing act does this represent for the company sponsoring a trial?
1: Oh, it's, that's absolutely the, 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 crux of it. Uh, you know, as we, as we were, were, speaking before, um, you know, trying to keep that focus in on what the, the specific scientific question that you need to answer is, I think is paramount. Um, you know, we've, um, we've had instances where we've seen protocols um that had uh you know a laundry list of secondary criteria that people wanted to have in there because i want to be able to speak to that um you know i can't have my sales folks speak to that if it's not on the label so i need that in there right now it really you really got to boil you got to you got to boil it down on the sponsor side and say what's necessary for the initial approval and think about your sort of your life cycle development and what can you do after um, after you get that initial marketing approval to uh, to add those those extras those uh, those, those um, you know want to add has instead of the the must haves um, into the uh, into the label after that so our recommendation is always keep it as simple as possible um, focus on on getting the uh, the ball over the over the goal line and then once you once you get the drug on the market there are other other ways that you can go about to uh, to expand your label on out and and and, and give your Uh, Your sales and marketing team something else to talk about.
0: John Boland, Vice President of Product Development for the Atlantic Research Group. John, thanks so much for your time today.
1: Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org.